Welcome to Beats by Social Work listeners. I am so excited because this is one of our first official interviews. I know that we did some interviews at the conference, but we had the absolute honor and privilege to get to speak with Dr. Robert Wicks. And oh my goodness, I am so excited to share this with you guys. Fangirling, fangirling here. Yeah, no, not going to lie. So I actually had the privilege of listening to Dr. Wick speak at a palliative care conference a few years back. And what he said spoke to me so much that I went and I bought all his books. Uh, well, I won't say all, uh, I'm not that big of a fangirl, <laughs> but I've, I've almost reached that status. Um, needless to say, I've read his book several times. They're so good. And I've recommended them to many social workers that have come across in our profession. Um, so we reached out and he was gracious enough to honor us with an interview. So very, yeah. very excited to introduce him to you guys. Yes. And I was actually one of those social workers that, uh, Kristen recommended the book, uh, specifically the resilient clinician. And I am so glad that she did. So, you know, Dr. Robert Wicks received his doctorate in psychology from Hanneman medical college and hospital he is professor emeritus at Loyola university in Maryland and has taught in universities and professional schools of psychology, medicine, nursing, theology, education, and social work. He has been invited as commencement speaker for many renowned universities. Over the past several years, he has spoken on his major areas of expertise, including resilience, self-care, and the prevention of secondary stress, something we know all too well in the world of transplant. He's spoken about this to many prestigious audiences. This includes are y'all ready for this list? Y'all just buckle up. I don't think you're Mem ready. <laughs> I know I wasn't members of Congress, the U S air force Academy, North American aerospace defense command, the defense intelligence agency, as well as Boston's children's hospital, Harvard divinity school, Yale school of nursing, Princeton theological seminary, members of NATO intelligent fusion fusion center in England He's also spoken at the Boston Public Library's comm commemoration of the Boston Marathon bombing, addressed 10,000 educators mm -hmm. in the Air Canada Arena in Toronto, spoke to the U.S. Army Medical M Command, and was the opening keynote speaker to the American Medical Directors Association, spoke also at the FBI and New York City Police Academies, and led a course on resilience in Beirut for relief workers from Aleppo, Syria, and address caregivers from over 20 different countries. And wow. if that wasn't enough, <laughs> in 1994, he was responsible for the psychological debriefing of NGOs, relief workers evacuated from Rwanda during their genocide. In 1993, and again in 2001, he worked in Cambodia with professionals from English-speaking community who were present to help the Khmer people rebuild their nation following years of terror and torture. And in 2006, he also delivered presentations on self-care at the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, and the Walter Reed Army Hospital to those healthcare professionals responsible for the Iraq and Afghan war veterans. Wow. And more recently, he addressed the U.S. Army healthcare professionals returning from Africa where they were assisting during the Ebola crisis. Dr. Wicks has also published over 60 books for both professionals and the general public, including Night Call, Overcoming Secondary Stress in Medical and Nursing Practice, The Resilient Clinician, and The Inner Life of the Counselor. You guys, I wish I could just list all 60 books here, 
but I'm so glad that we linked them for you in our bio on the show notes. In 2006, Dr. Wicks received the first annual alumni award for excellence in professional psychology from Widener University and is also the recipient of the Humanitarian of the Year Award from the American Counseling Association's Division on Spirituality, Ethics, and Religious Values in Counseling. And it's so evident as to why he did win that award. Um, Mm -hmm. For over 35 years, Dr. Wicks has been called upon to speak the calm into chaos we can all relate to that. Uh, He's been called upon by individuals and groups experiencing great stress, anxiety, and confusion. And we were lucky enough to call him into our chaos and allow him, he allowed us rather, (laughs) to be interviewed on our podcast for us, as well as for all of our listeners to hear. So stay tuned, listen in, It's, it's gonna be great. Hi, Dr. Wicks, can you hear us? Good morning. I can hear you. Yeah. Great. No, so thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us and for all of your prompt responses. I'm speaking for myself and I believe for Tiffany as well, what an honor it is to get to meet with you and chat with you about all of this. It's so important to our work. So thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's nice to work with an obsessive compulsive, isn't it? Yes. It is. It is. I think that you spoke our love language when you sent the questions back to us and we both messaged each other like, did this really happen? Oh, this is, this is wonderful. So Dr. Wicks, thank you so much for joining us today. This is such an honor. I know that I've already said this, but uh, thank you again. So before we get into several questions that we have for you, can you please review for us why transplant and LVAD social workers and other LVAD and transplant professionals are under such stress today. Good. Well, physician and humanitarian Albert Schweitzer once said, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know, the only ones among you who will be truly happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. And I think your MCS social workers and other transplant and LVAD professionals certainly uh, are ones who have found how to serve in tough situations. So these are the people that Schweitzer is speaking about. But as you know, especially now with COVID and world disruptions and an unstable healthcare system, it's obviously not easy. So I've come to bring you both good news and potentially bad news, okay? Oh dear. The good news. There's no group more committed, creative, bright, and compassionate than social workers in your specialties. You're at the heart of healthcare. You know, there, there may be others who are equal, but none mm-hmm. better. Now the potentially bad news. There's no group more creative, bright, and compassionate than social workers with your specialties. <laughs> Swiss psychiatrist put it, uh, Carl Jung put it this way. You know, the brighter the light, the deeper the darkness. Mm. Because you're so committed and talented, there's a tendency to deny or intellectualize or minimize or avoid your personal and professional stress. And and society just enhances that because in very technical terms, they expect you to be able to just suck it up. Mm -hmm. But that kind of attitude is not going to work because you're in an intense line of work because you patients and clients are you know, at end stage organ failure. And your work is life and death. It's 
because of what you do, you know, you must look at the patient in all kinds of angles, from the medical, the surgical, the psychosocial, to determine if they're, they're appropriate. Uh, so in completing your evaluations, which are, you know, pretty complex, my daughter's a social worker and has done it, it's, it, it, it's you know, you got to look at the past, the present, the future, sensitive things come up. And uh, even if you, 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 you're there, you're, you're still in a position of what I would call tentative hope. Because even if they become candidates, as you know better than I do, mm-hmm. they may not receive the transplant in time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or, you know, the, the LVAD surgery may not be successful or provide the quality of life. And then, you know, there's not just the physical, there's the mental health part to it. You know, uh, each phase of life has different challenges. This provides an intense phase of life. So due to the nature of your profession and what you face in your personal life, you know, we don't even add that like your family or financial or other stresses, you know, you run the risk of suffering from significant levels of acute and chronic secondary stress. Wow. There's just so much to go off of that. Uh, Thank you. And I appreciate the fact that you said that there's uh, good news and bad news. <laughs> yes. Well, and I think that's something that we we deal with with our patients a lot is the good news and the bad news of thinking about end-stage organ failure and thinking about that cautious hope is, is what I like to refer to it as as well. Um, so I love that you touched on that. You know, you mentioned something in there about secondary stress. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's something I think we all deal with. But can you can you talk to that a little bit more specifically, how it could relate to us? Yeah, that's something that 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 is the center of my work. Secondary stress represents the pressures experienced in reaching out to others, and it can be actually quite dangerous in its acute form. Well, I was in Germany at one point uh, working with um, caregivers for the U.S. Army that had just come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and I was getting ready to speak on my book, Bounce, Living the Resilient Life, and just as I was ready to get up, a full bird colonel came to see me and said, before you give a talk on this, uh, Dr. Wicks, I want to give you a caution. I said, what's the caution? He said, there are a lot of ghosts in this room. Mm. I said, what do you mean? He said, there's nothing left inside them. Oh, wow. So acute stress is, is serious, but now this may surprise you, but I have found that chronic secondary stress what's known as burnout can be even more dangerous at times. And that's my concern for you because it's so insidious. Marshall McLuhan, the Canadian philosopher and author once posed the question, if the temperature of the bath rises one degree every 10 minutes, how will the bather know when to scream? Mm-hmm. Well, in healthcare, we don't know when to scream today. Mm-hmm. What we need to recognize is the seeds of compassion and the seeds of burnout or chronic secondary stress are the same seeds. So physicians, PAs and nurses and social workers who took epidemiology courses years ago probably remember being taught that for every case of poisoning, there's at least a dozen cases of subclinical toxicity. Now, what does that mean for us This, you know, in this presentation? Right. Well, all in healthcare really need to be concerned about secondary stress, not simply the impaired 
seriously impaired social worker. For each one of you experiencing severe secondary stress, there's at least a dozen on the edge of it. Mm. And so we need to recognize it's the crucial impact of having a healthy perspective during these times, because it's not the amount of darkness in the world, in healthcare, in your individual work setting, your family, even in yourself that matters. It's how you stand in that whole darkness, okay? Uh, so gaining, regaining, and maintaining a healthy perspective is crucial. And so your psychology, philosophy of life, your faith perspective, attitude, spirituality, wisdom are all needed to live a full life if you want to remain in the, in the work that, that you're in. Absolutely. Wow. And you also write and speak to professionals in medicine, nursing, social work, counseling, and psychology, really the entire interdisciplinary team, because it does take a team, especially in transplant and LVAD about post-traumatic growth. Uh, mm. Can you speak a little bit about post-traumatic growth and why it's relevant for us? It's fascinating. This is really an important topic, and I wish it would be emphasized more, particularly in, in your work, because post-traumatic growth, PTG, involves persons not simply bouncing back from trauma and significant stress, mm -hmm. but also to actually deepen as persons in ways that paradoxically would not have been possible had the trauma or stress not happened in the first place. Mm. As a result, the person experiencing PTG may mature psychologically and spiritually in new ways. They may understand their signature strengths more clearly, especially what I would call the shadow or minor ones. And as a result of PTG, they may become more appreciative for life and the persons in it. And that's my hope for you. Let, let me give you an illustration from my own life. Mm -hmm. My daughter, when she was very young, had severe scoliosis and she needed to wear a cast for 23 hours a day for three years. And finally, it became so bad she needed to go in for surgery, have 13 levels of her spine fused and an iron bar put up her back because, as you know, bone takes forever to fuse. Mm -hmm. Well, when she was done with the surgery, people would say, oh, is she fine? You know, just like transplant, are you okay? You know, yeah. but life was chronic. You know, she almost died when she, uh, you know, was in, when, in university, you know, she crawled into the house and we had to have the rod taken out. When she gave birth to a second child, she almost mm. died. And recently she went in for a day procedure and was there for a week. She had a choice at that point. Mm -hmm. You needed to honor because you got to honor the pain you're in. You can't do spiritual romanticism, you know, oh, you know, everybody has it. No, no, honor it. Mm -hmm. But then be open to where it might take you. And in her case, I recognized where it took her when she, and it, you know, after that, it said to me, surprised me over breakfast. She said, uh, Dad, I never told you this. And I thought, oh, glory be to God. What? 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 <laughs> what? Uh, she said, I always wanted to be a Marine Corps officer like you were. I said, you did. She said, yeah, but because of my condition. I said, well, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to become a social worker and I'm going to work for the VA. Wow. And she did follow through and she's now responsible for severely injured returning Iraqi and Afghani vets. And one of them came in who had a leg blown off and she greeted him warmly mm -hmm. in ways that I can't because I haven't been through the pain she's been through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she greeted him and she said, come right in. And he said, boy, you're perky <laughs> he in the eye and said, you've served our country. Well, 
Now you come mm. on and let us know what we can do for you. Oh. That's the thing. You see what professionals in the transplant and implant areas often fail to recognize is, you know, that, that there is a possibility. And that possibility is not simply do I suppress or, or handle the pain or do I let it roll over me? Mm -hmm. It's an awareness that, that makes a difference, you know, but, but it, 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 social workers don't do well with self-care that would help them understand that. Absolutely. And Tiffany, I see that you want to say something. Well, no, and I don't want to, I don't want to steal, steal it from you, but I think that, that both of us, we've talked about this a little bit and in, in listening to some previous conversations that you've had and reading your book to that point, you make a comment, the, the Russian proverb about the, those that live next to a cemetery don't cry over death. And, and I think that in transplant, we especially social work, we like to say sometimes that we carry a cemetery in our heads yeah. of and patients our hearts. Mm -hmm. and our hearts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so it just, that really resonated, I think with both of us in that regard and kind of similar to what you were talking about just now in that, you know, we've become so good at compartmentalizing and so good at keeping that this is what we need to do and we need to be there and we need to show up for our patients. And then we need to go on to the next one that sometimes we don't do that, uh, as you said, allowing ourselves to experience that emotions. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's part of the whole self-care process, but it's very difficult for people like yourselves to get involved in, in, in self-care because what professionals in the transplant and implant areas often fail to recognize is just because you're willing and able to carry the psychological load mm -hmm. you're tasked with doesn't mean it's not heavy. You know, the Japanese proverb goes, you know, eventually even a gushing spring can dry up. So let's face it, you cope, I cope. The question is, how can we do it a bit better? You know, social workers in a specialty such as yours, you know, you're often among the hidden casualties in medicine. Nobody sees the sacrifices you make. They, they often see the first person on the line, you know, from the medical or mm -hmm. nursing vantage point. But, you know, you and, and if you're married, your spouses, you know, are, are this quiet kind of sufferer. And so self-care is necessary. But the problem with self-care is you have to have a particular signature strength or virtue mm -hmm. to get serious about it. Now, you might say, well, what is it? Well, let me give you an illustration because even, yeah. even if you want it, doesn't mean you're going to get it. Right. My daughter, because she's a social worker, naturally does social work things with her children. Ah, of course. So, <laughs> so at dinner, at dinner one day, she, they were getting ready to get up my two granddaughters. They were about six and eight at the time. And, and she, she said, I want to know what gifts God has given you that you're going to share with the world. And they love this stuff. So they went on and on. And when they were finally done, my son-in-law, who hadn't said anything, finally said, well, what about humility? And the six-year-old said, well, what exactly is it? And he said, well, get the dictionary. And he read out the definition. And he said, now, who do you think of when I read that definition? And the, the, my two granddaughters and my daughter chimed up, mama, referring to my wife. Oh. And he said, well, what about pop-pop? And they went, uh, no, no. no. <laughs> So even if we want this virtue, there's no guarantee, but 
here's why it's so important. When you take knowledge and you add humility, you get wisdom. And when you take that very wisdom and add it to caregiving like you do, you get love. And love is what brought you into social work, into this specialty, and it's at the heart of life. So I really think that you really have to, you know, deal with your resistance to taking care of yourself. I know that sounds crazy. And when I work with persons like yourself, I never take the resistance on directly. You're going to lose, you know. Mm -hmm. So I go around it and I say to them, look, you do know self-care is not just about you. What do you mean? One of the greatest things you can share with your patients or clients is a sense of your own resilience and a healthy perspective, but you can't share what you don't have. So the whole thing of self-care is important, you know, particularly since we deal with very unusual situations in our work. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, that's tough as a social worker too. Of course, the entire concept of self-care for from a social perspective is, uh, is difficult because it's the, um, we, Tiffany and I are laughing because it's constantly do as I say, not as I do, (laughs) because we need to lead by example and practice self-care, but it's very difficult. And the concept of self-care is I feel a little jaded because some people just see self-care as putting on a face mask and, you know, taking a long bath and that's it. And it's so much more than that. It's processing, it's uh, journaling, having mindful time. And so that's, that's one of the things that your work, you speak of the dangers of parallel process and the need for periods of reflection, mindful meditation to maintain that healthy perspective that we've been talking about. Yeah. So can you add a little more on that parallel process? That's very, very important for you and your work. Parallel process is where we mimic the patterns of those we guide, care for, or supervise. Mm. And uh, when I, I was asked a couple of years ago now to fly into Lebanon, and what the plan was is bring caregivers from Aleppo, Syria, into Beirut, and then I would work with them on resilience through an Arabic interpreter. Mm. And when I got into the room, I could see it didn't take long to recognize they were suffering from both what we call traumatic counter-transference and traumatic transference. And by that, I mean, the counter-transference was when they were in Aleppo, they were working with clients that made impossible demands on them. And they couldn't possibly, I mean, ISIS is breathing down their neck and all this is going on. Uh, they, they, you know, they have to stay indoors. They have to stay away from windows. They drive at night. You, you can't have the headlights on because you'll be bombed. And, but instead of doing what they could, and this is the same for you, and letting others take care of the residue, they try to be God. Mm. And as a result, they felt overwhelmed, they felt helpless, they hopeless, and even at times angry at the clients. Mm -hmm. Well, then they came into the room with me and they transferred it on to me. They were angry at me. I'm I'm used to that. So, Uh, (laughs) so, but I was able to, to, to lean back In such instances, we have to lean back and be more mindful rather than simply react with our family, friends, coworkers, you know, volunteers or those we serve. Because without being reflective, we can lose our way. When I was at Walter Reed Army Hospital, 
a physician came up to me at the at the break and you could see he was this crusty army physician so i said oh here he comes you know <laughs> so he said you got a minute i said i do he said i'm blowing my whole life through my ass can you help me <laughs> okay how did you respond to that i i said can you be a little bit more specific <laughs> yeah and he said to me that since he came back from the war zone, he expected to be redeployed soon. He said, all I'm doing is cutting legs off. I'd yeah. like to take a damn gallbladder out for a change, he said. Okay. So then I go home and I'm nuts. I go upstairs, try to hit a few golf balls in a cup. And my wife burst into the room and says, you're at work all day. And then you come here and you're hitting golf balls. This marriage is going down the tubes. And I said to him, well, what do you do right after work? And he said, well, I go home. What else would I do? And I was angry again, you know? So I said to him, I said, well, you can't do that. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, those of us who work in the hospital, when, we, you know, I said, when you go to a restaurant and you go to the bathroom, what does the sign say over the sink? That if you, you know, work here, you need to wash your hands before you get back to work. Mm -hmm. We who work in the hospital know that we need to wash our hands, not only after we go to the bathroom, but before. So we don't mm. contaminate ourselves and then go back on the floor and contaminate others. Mm -hmm. I said, you're leaving here psychologically and spiritually contaminated and you oh, wow. need to do something. He said, like, is it a big deal? No. I said, simply walk around the hospital after work. Don't rush home. If that's not good, because they'll yell, doc, doc, then get down to your car and sit quietly for a while. And first of all, let the, the, the objective geography come to the surface of the day. In other mm. words, what happened? Mm. Then look at the subjective geography. How did I feel about it? What kind of thoughts produced those feelings? And what kind of belief schemata do I have that is probably false and leading to those dysfunctional thoughts? And then go home and apologize to your wife and say, I, I need to be more mindful, open to you and the boys and I need it as well as you. And then let her know you're going to go up to the bedroom and take off that uniform, that role. And I always suggest mm -hmm. to people when you come back from work, change, just change. Mm -hmm. Even if you're wearing fairly casual work stuff at work, leave that role behind. And then tell her you're going to hit a few golf balls, not to ignore her, but to clean your palate more completely. And I said, if you do that, then, then, then that'll have a major impact. And people will often say, well, I'm a very reflective person. Stop. Stop. <laughs> we need to give this priority. I, when I was in Cambodia, working with those people trying to rebuild the country after years of terror and torture, at the break, a Buddhist nun came up to me and she said, doctor, do you have a moment? I said, sister, for you, anything, what, what can I do for you? Mm -hmm. She said, we have a young Buddhist who is the chaplain in the unit at the hospital for farmers who've had their legs blown off by landmines and he's getting very depressed what should i do i said well sister it it would help me if you tell me that once he's done with work and he comes down and sits in his car and he meditates what comes up in the meditation then i could make a better intervention with you mm -hmm. and she stopped and looked at me like a deer caught in the headlights and she said doctor i am so embarrassed i said sister what would you be embarrassed about she said, I'm a Buddhist nun, and I did not think about mindfulness meditation. Mm. I really feel that 
that what it does for us, it increases the gap between the stimulus and our response. Mm -hmm. Because we deal with such negativity, like from families of the, of the patients you have and, and anger. And I remember I had a colleague that was so jaded that finally the hospital said, you, you got to mentor her. I said, well, we could send her. No, no, you. So, so she came in and she, oh my God, I have never seen such, you know, sarcasm. So she shocked me one day. She came in and said, you know, I read your book, Riding the Dragon, and I really loved it. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, thank you. And in the next breath, she said, too bad you're not like what you've written. Why? Uh, so after I prayed for her early happy death, <laughs> I leaned back rather than immediately responding, took a breath and said to her, obviously from the tone in your voice and what you've said, you feel I've let you down in some way. Maybe we can talk about it. You see, reflection is clearly a first step in increasing your emotional intelligence. You look at your thinking, you see how it's you're impacting your emotions and actions, and then you reflect on how you can control, handle, and express your emotions and the interactions in a healthy way. As Carl Jung, again, once noted, knowing your own darkness is the best method of dealing with the darkness of other people. And it also helps you deal with your unprocessed pain. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I was walking along and I ran to a colleague and a colleague said something positive to me. Mm -hmm. And I got all filled up. It was just some small thing, you know? And I realized that that reaction meant that I had not been taking out the time for reflection, the process, mm -hmm. the emotions. And what happens is you, when you do that, you can see what triggers, triggers emotional pain and moral injury in yourself. You know, it, it, you can discover who and what provides you with psychological safety and it, it helps you gain a healthy perspective and healthy perspective has such a wonderful history, not just yeah. in psychology and psychiatry, but in religion. In the Talmud, yeah. we read, you do not see things as they are, you see things as you are. In the Christian yes. Testament in Matthew 6, 22, if your eye is good, your whole body will be good. You know, Buddhists speak about it as the unobstructed visions Hindus in the Upanishads are turning around in one seat of consciousness. So perspective is really, really crucial and at the heart of the whole reflective process. Wow. It's so funny you say that because we, we talk about perspective frequently in our world and having a perspective when you're going through end-stage organ failure and when you're going through this journey, we like to refer to it, but it goes back to what you said we we don't take our own advice um <laughs> so we tell others about the importance of that but just hearing it hearing you speak to it you know what i like too is that you are you're holding us accountable and and calling us out for things that we need to do and really putting it into a way where it's almost like an assignment and i think sometimes as social workers we uh we do better when we have assignments uh, <laughs> more task oriented <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And it is, it's, it's kind of saying, hey, you, in order to show up for others, which we all say, but in order to show up specifically for your patients and, and be better, you have to be better. You really do. And I think that's the, well, the, the, the real, the issue is, to put it very bluntly, is you're in the failure business. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I work with surgical residents, I, you know, I say to them, before we get into, you know, studying this 
my book, Overcoming Secondary Stress in Medical and Nursing Practice and getting into all these little details, let's get to the core of it. During your tenure as a surgeon, you're going to kill people. Mm -hmm. Maybe not through malpractice, but through mispractice, because you can't be at an A level 100% of the time. You also have to realize what is your calling amidst all of this. Uh, I was in South Africa working with them, you know, post-apartheid, and a woman came up to me at the break. Uh, I think I was speaking on my book Bounce at the time. And she said to me, well, I can't do it anymore. I said, well, what is it that you do? She said, I'm a social worker. And I work with women who've been sexually and physically abused and try to get them justice. Mm-hmm. And she said, they, for that to happen, we have to go to court. That means they have to take a day off from work and they're poor and often single parents, but they do it because they want that justice. And then we get to the court and the judge who's often male looks at the material and says, oh, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Make another appointment. Mm. She said, I'm a failure. Well, I let the emotion settle for a moment because she was pretty upset. And I said to her, well, who was with that woman other than you at that moment? Well, no one. I said, would it be an exaggeration to say that you were closer to her at that moment than anyone else in the world? She said, no, it it wouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And then in as gentle a voice as I could muster, I said, and you want to leave that? I said, don't realize we are not in the success business. We're in the faithfulness business. And that's wow. where you are. You're in the faithfulness business. You, you, suppose the person doesn't get approved. Suppose the person gets approved, but is not, it's not in time. Mm-hmm. Suppose they, they get approved, it's in time, but their life is not what they had dreamed about. During all that process, you have been faithful. You've been present. That in itself is something special. And by the way, you know, I wish I could show you a movie of the impact that you've had that's positive. I said, you have no idea because people do not come back often and say thank you. Mm-hmm. They feel you know it. That's so true. And when they do, when they rarely do, we're so awkward with it because we're so not used to getting thanks or gratitude that we don't know how to respond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned, uh, the story you told about uh, the Buddhist nun that uh, had the individual and how does she help with that, that speaks to me closely because one of the things we struggle with in, in our profession is patients who have an extremely long hospitalization that there's no end exit strategy, no end game. There's no answer. Everyone wants the answer and to just sit with them. And like you said, being faithful. I would take the just out. It's not just sit with them. Sitting with them is curative for the moment. Mm. Because what you're doing is you're listening. You're not, you know, staying silent, waiting for your opportunity to speak. That's hearing. Mm. But it's listening. You're saying, okay, you're processing. Well, what have I experienced with this person up to this point? What they're saying is uh, emotionally, what kind of thinking would produce that? What's the support system they have and how is that impacting positively and negatively? And to be honest, who else is on the team? You know, some people you're going to work with are very, very difficult, not just the patients, but the team members. 
Mm -hmm. I have a colleague who's convinced there are only five irritating patients and five irritating colleagues in all of healthcare in America. And they just travel from hospital to hospital. But I have worked with some people that, are, that, that really are very difficult as colleagues. And that's part of the stress as well. People think it's just the patient, but it's colleagues, it's family, it's friends, it's the environment that's so dark. Yeah, there are a lot of elements in it that are challenges and we can either use them to soften our soul and open us up to become deeper as persons and more grateful for things like a sip of a cup of coffee or a short walk during the day, or it can just jade us, make us jaded. Yeah. Yeah. And one additional question that I wanted just to throw in there, uh, if we have time, was one of my favorite books that you've written is The, the Resilient Clinician. And I recommend it to every student that comes across yeah. my office. But there's um, several questionnaires that you have in that book. And can you speak to how you developed those and the importance of them? Because I, I, like Tiffany and I have already said, I, I value them greatly because it's that task-oriented, it's an assignment. Yeah, in both, in both the, and the, basically it's the same book, The Resilient Clinician, Bounce, Living the Resilient Life and Overcoming Secondary Stress in Medical and Nursing Practice but it depends upon the audience. Sure. So, and what I tried to do was develop a self-care protocol outline. And the goal there was to try to get the person reading it to develop something that's realistic, but ambitious. Mm, okay. And also raise new ideas and to make it a task as part of almost like your, your, your whole clinical journey. So that that it, it's not, you know, oh, this is nice. No, 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 it's part of your role. And when I work with hospital executives, I say to them, unless you can get them into self-care, this is going to cost you a fortune. Mm-hmm. Because to replace a trained social worker, a surgeon, a, a, it's a fortune. And, and you, you know, and don't forget, you've got somebody with all this clinical wisdom. So for the system, as well as for you, it's important. And then there's a vulnerability profile. And I developed that because each of us is vulnerable in certain ways. Uh, I had a colleague who said, you know, he said, with me, uh, he said, helpless people really upset me. I said, oh. He said, with you, I think, speaking to me, he said, I think it's angry people. And I think he was right in both instances because he's always trying to fix it. And I'm always suffering from that terrible disease, chronic niceness, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you can, you learn about yourself. So this becomes an adventure. It becomes an adventure. And that's why the books to, to try to make this a journey and an adventure rather than a job or a fix it. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I love that because it speaks to our language as well. And it is, if you look at it as a job or you look at it as a fix it, it's at what point is it ending versus it should be continuously learning. And it's about the journey of it versus the destination of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that in social, I taught at Bryn Mawr's graduate school of social work and social research years ago. And one of the things that I loved about social work that, 
you know, is that it, it was so encompassing. It was so holistic. And unless we can include ourselves in this holism, and unless we can include self-compassion with compassion with others, you know, it's just like if I was a therapist and a woman and, and I'm so overwhelmed and I'm saying all the right things to the patient, but I'm not modeling it. Mm. What, you know? So when you sit with a patient or a client and you model being able to sit with the darkness that they're sharing, then you're modeling for them how they can sit with their own darkness. That's a great gift. The music of social work sometimes is more important than the lyrics. So what you do is important, but your bedside manner is equally important or maybe more important, but it's no good without self-care. Oh, wow. I mean, that, that one sentence just speaks volumes. That is just incredible. Absolutely. Oh, well, is there any final points uh, before we close that you would like to add anything that we may not have touched on. There's a uh, a podcast that I listen to a lot and he always closes his interviews with, uh, is there anything I should have asked? <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things. Let me, let me just mention a couple of things. First of all, when we speak about resilience, we often think of it as an individual thing. Like, what do I need to fix in myself? But we need to look at toxic systems as well. Um, Christina Maslach does wonderful stuff on burnout. And one, of, one thing that struck me, she says, if you're examining how a cucumber turned into a pickle without looking at the vinegar barrel in which it was submerged, you wouldn't get very far. And it's the same thing with healthcare. You need to look at, and when I work with healthcare executives, I never ask them, is your system toxic? What are they going to say? No. Of course so not. Where is it toxic? You know, where? And, and it's the same thing with you. You have to ask in your system, in your team, in the healthcare system, where is it toxic? And secondly, what can I control and what can't I control? Uh, uh. If you can't control it, don't waste any energy on it because Baumeister would tell us, Roy Baumeister, that the self is limited. Don't waste energy but look at where you can control it. So that's, that's number one. Number two is um, that in developing a self-care protocol, uh, I would say that, that, that there are three elements that are crucial. One element is exercise. And that's, people hear that and they go, I don't have time. I'm speaking about a short walk. I think it makes a big difference. I remember having a depressed client. I suggested the walk. And I said, well, how did the walk go? Oh, I was too depressed. I said, oh, geez, that's my fault. And she said, what do you mean? I said, it should have warned you. I didn't present it correctly. I want you to be depressed outside. Because what happens is when you take a walk, you have oxygen exchange and it reduces the, the depression. Mm-hmm. The, the, second, the second element is friendship. There's a Cameroonian proverb that goes, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think you need four types of friends. One is the prophet that says, what voices are guiding you? The second is the cheerleader who thinks you walk on water. Mm 
you know, so that when you call him up at the end of the day and you say, you're not going to believe what he did today. She says, I don't believe it. And when you tell her the story, she says, you're totally right. He's totally wrong. And because you're humble, you say, well, it, it might have had some minuscule part to play in it. Oh, no, you're a saint. You're a saint. Now, if you just have the prophet, you'll burn out. If you just have the cheerleader, you won't grow. But together, it's like when I make an intervention with a patient. If I'm just clear, I'll cause narcissistic injury and hurt them. If I'm just gentle, they won't grow. But that balance is like the post-traumatic growth, PTG balance. You know, gentleness and openness is essential. So the prophet who wakes us up, the cheerleader that supports us. Third is the harasser or teaser, because on the way to taking your work seriously, and it is serious, there's a danger of taking a detour and taking yourself too serious. Oh, wow. And finally, yeah. the inspirational friend who calls you to be all that you can be without embarrassing you that you are where you are. And the other piece is in addition to the walk and the friendship is reflection. And just a couple of minutes, people say, well, why only a couple of minutes? Well, how long are you doing it now? Regularity is more important than length of time. Mm -hmm. And there are three dark alleys you wanna be aware of. First is arrogance where you project the blame on others. It's fun to throw away the blame, but then you throw away the power to change. Second is ignorance where you condemn yourself. It's crazy. It's a waste of energy. And third is discouragement. And that's the last home of the ego, you know, because you think that you can accomplish what you want without recognizing the elements. So what I'm selling is a spirit of intrigue. And I think when we have that intrigue, it helps us to really see each day as an exploration. And so we need to do whatever we can to have the stamina that comes from a healthy perspective that comes out of that reflection. So I would close with a story, presidential story from Bill Clinton. Mm. On March 23rd, 2017, Bill Clinton traveled to Derry, Northern Ireland to deliver the eulogy for Martin McGuinness at St. Columbus Church. And during his presentation, he shared a phone conversation he had with Nelson Mandela, who was then president of South Africa. He had just become president. Mandela called him and he said he was getting so much criticism. And Clinton said, oh, from the Afrikaners? He said, no, from my own people. You know, they think I've sold them out. And he said, well, what do you tell them? And he said, well, I tell them, yes, and I spent 27 years in jail. They took the best years of my life away. I didn't see my children grow up. It ruined my marriage and a lot of my friends were killed. And if I can get over it, you can too. We've got to build a future. My point to you is in both this and in my writings is you're good persons and find professionals quietly doing a lot of wonderful things. You do what you can to keep a healthy perspective, develop an ambitious yet realistic self-care protocol and get out for a bit of a walk each day. And I think you'll be fine and you'll be able to continue your great work. I feel badly when people get burned out unnecessarily. It's everybody loses. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. 
And so if you'll entertain us for just a second, because I do want us to, I want to make sure that we give you out the audience, the information on where to find you. But before we get to that, entertain us for just a moment. So one of the things we do in each of our episode is a self check-in. Uh, we call it our vital check, uh, just like you would at the doctor's office. So uh, we usually make uh, up a Likert scale of some kind. <laughs> so Tiffany, Dr. Wicks on a scale of, um, Let's see, burnt out provider to the most resilient clinician possible. Where do you find yourself today? Hmm. I'll give Dr. Wicks a moment of reflection. Tiffany, where do you find yourself today? Oh, wow. I would say that I am probably in the, I'm not the burnt out clinician at this point, but I can see that I need to incorporate more self-care uh, into my, so I'm, I'm the clinician, we'll say, not resilient, <laughs> not burnt out. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I would say I'm at an eight. Okay. Yeah, you know, because I feel fairly resilient because I've, 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 uh, I've tried to make sure that what I do makes sense. When I was up at visiting a colleague at Harvard, he said to me, I was going to do a book on availability and it was very glossy. <laughs> and he said, stop. He said, availability is not just a gift, it's a problem. And uh, he said, we need to do, figure out what theme would help. I said, what do you think? I don't know. So we chatted for a while. He said, I've got it. I said, what is it? He said, it's pruning. When you prune something, it doesn't blossom less, it blossoms more deeply. So that I've just come off a long trail of, of talks to physician assistants and, you know, other kinds of people and, and, and I'm getting ready for a trip to Northwest Canada. And it, the people I've dealt with are so good, but they're so hard on themselves and it takes so much of my energy to focus on them that I feel myself, I, you know, I would love to say I'm a 10, but that eight or seven is because I recognize that during transition, during as you're moving from one to the other, that's a very vulnerable time. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is an interesting perspective. And I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah. yeah definitely. Thank you. You know, we, uh, we are so thankful that you came on to this podcast and it is the, this podcast is so important to us because it hits on people that do feel like they're sometimes on an island. They don't have that, that community. They, they feel that burnout, but they're not sure if it's just them, if it's appropriate. And so it, it was important for us to have this podcast and bring people like yourselves, yourself on. And we're just wondering for our audience, because of that as well, where can we tell people to go if they want to review what you've talked about, if they want to do the scales themselves, if they want to learn more about your writings, which of your writings would you suggest our starter, our listeners start with and, yeah, and really, where can they go to review? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I didn't realize how much I enjoy writing until oh. a friend said to me recently, he said, how many books have you published? And when I told him, he said, Bob, I think you need to get out more often. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I would suggest a few books. One is the, 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 a light book that I think encompasses a lot of what we said is called Night Call. 
It's on embracing compassion and hope in a troubled world. Night call. Another one that's light, that's a companion is called the simple care of a hopeful heart. And it's on mentoring yourself. So it's sort of interesting. And, and then if you want to get a little heavier, bounce living the resilient life or the overcoming secondary stress in medical and nursing practice, either one or the other, not both. Uh, and then perspective, the calm within a storm focuses on just that topic. And finally, if spirituality, faith, and religion are a key part of your life, riding the dragon. Mm. So those titles would, and then if there are any, you know, if you Google me, there's a, um, I have a little site, that, you know, I don't even think it's up to date, but, but it, you know, it'll give you some idea of the books I've written, or you can even email me at rwicks, W-I-C-K-S, at Loyola, L-O-Y-O-L-A dot E-D-U. You know, I'm not that busy, so it's not, it's not an intrusion. So, um, but I'd love to see you all not just get by and succeed, but really find your work relishing in so many ways. So I'm honored to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Wicks. It's been an honor and a privilege on both ends. Wow, Tiffany. Yeah. <laughs> where do we, where do we even begin to unpack that? That was just incredible. I don't even know. Um, you know, to be honest with you, and so for the sake of transparency for our listeners, I think it's worth saying that this um reflection piece of our recording actually occurred about a week later. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's worth saying that because, you know, we're just reflecting on it. And what really stuck out to us, and for me, honestly, one of the things that really stood out to me, and I have honestly been thinking about all week, is the music of social work is more important than the lyrics. Mm. Mm-hmm. And when he corrected me on and corrected me with grace, but he corrected me on take the just out of your sentence. That that's been sitting with me, um, the just out of it, because I know I do that all too often. Um, I often am sitting there with my team and I'll say, well, I'm just the social worker, so you know, I'll give, I'll give a recommendation or I'll, I'll give some, some input, but often follow it with, but I'm just the social worker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my team will say sometimes not just, but the way that he put it in, in this interview really allowed that reflection, really allowed that understanding of we are not just there. We are someone that is is so much a part of that patient's life that we're showing up Mm -hmm. we're not just coming by um we're not just doing a supportive visit we are there to listen to them and and sometimes the only people that might be truly hearing them in the day Mm -hmm. and and going back to what he said about the lyrics versus the music you know, there's often times where we have a patient and, and he even mentioned this where they're in the hospital and 
they're listed, they may not get a transplant. It, the outcome may not be what they expected. We're the ones sitting with them. Mm-hmm. We sit with them when a lot of times that moment of sitting with them is very uncomfortable for other members of the team. And it's not in their skill set. And that's why we're so vital. And to really honor and respect that we are part of the symphony that makes this move and keep going. Yeah. Well, and I think it it further explained or spoke to rather our discussion from last episode uh, about the cog in the machine. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it, it expanded and even a, a more beautiful uh, way of putting it in a sense. And I, and I like that you just put that symphony in there because it is, it's like the, the symphony versus the machine in a sense and the notes and the music, the lyrics, but putting it all together. And uh, yeah, how much he spoke to the importance and value that we bring. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I've often reflected on another thing that he said too, about having that your self-care protocol needs to have very specific things, physical activity. I know I feel better as a human being when I am physical and moving, even, even if it's gentle or calming, it's just not sitting in front of Netflix for six and a half hours, Mm -hmm. but Mainly what I want to focus on too, is the friendships that you Mm -hmm. need in your life and how each friend, each description of the friend, each different type of a friend has their own value and their own weight and helps keep you accountable in your work. And you need each one. Absolutely. And and as he was talking about it, it made sense. And I thought about people Mm -hmm. in my life that I have and, and who do I go to for different pieces of it? And sometimes it's, it's the same person that has a little bit of each one of those. And I think that's, that's my favorite kind of friend is when you can have a little piece of each one of those um, in it, but Mm -hmm. it, it really speaks to knowing that where he said that the, just having a prophet in your life is going to burn you out and just having a cheerleader in your life isn't going to help you grow. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, that was big because sometimes we can find ourselves getting caught up in the guiding aspects, right. Or just wanting the hype. Um, but it really takes all of those. And I think even with what we're doing right now, when we think about the reflection piece too, and we, it's given us kind of a cause for pause, um, mm-hmm. a reflection on looking at our friendships, a a reflection of all that he said within this interview and recognizing that reflection doesn't have to be 20 minutes every day. It doesn't have to be an hour. It doesn't have to be necessarily meditation to start with. It's just a couple of minutes that get into Mm -hmm. a routine of it. Exactly. Exactly. And the fact that self-care is systemic too, that not looking at is my, is my team or my hospital institution or my healthcare system that I work with, is it toxic versus what is toxic in it? Mm -hmm. 
Because let's be honest, we would be fooling ourselves if we said, well, my hospital's perfect and they love me and respect me and everything's great. No, 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 friend. What about it is toxic and what do you have a role in that and what can you change or improve in that? And that helps direct where your energy should go because we're not perfect. We're all humans just trying to work towards the same goal. We all have our faults and they all manifest in different ways, but recognizing that too, and how it's a team approach, because I know that we've all, especially those of us that have been in transplant for some time have seen this mass exodus of transplant social workers and transplant professionals leaving because of burnout. And a lot of people coming in that are new to the field and how can we prevent that from happening again? Right. Right. And talking in that regard of where you put your your focus or even thinking about your your energy level of it. And so learning from past mistakes or past things that didn't go right, but but also not expecting those new individuals that come in to be the people that left. I think that's also an important thing of they're not the same individuals. It's not the same team mm-hmm. and it's not going to be. So stop focusing on that and stop being upset that it's not, or stop dwelling and fixating in that area because it's not going to change. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if I can share a situation where a lot of this reflection really manifested, um, So I've had a patient who has really fought hard, fought so hard and wanted to see a good outcome, but unfortunately complication after complication led to this person transitioning to end of life and the, uh, and my, uh, my student intern went with me to those counseling sessions to be quite honest with you, I didn't know what to say. How can you, what do you say to this family? Mm. And so I just sat Yep. and I sat and I sat and I sat. And when I reflected on that, and of course I offered some small one-liners, just how sorry I was. And you're right. This sucks. There's nothing right about this. And we followed all the rules and you followed all the rules And this is still the outcome. So I reflected on that with the intern and um, she said, you know, I just kept thinking of all the things that I wanted to say to fix it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there was nothing that I could do to fix it. And that we really did just need to sit. And if I've learned anything from you in this rotation, it was the value of silence. Mm. And if I would be fooling everybody, if I said that was my master plan. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was just really good to hear the thing about that. Dr. Wick said about the music versus the lyrics. There is not one thing that I could say in that situation that would make it better at all. If anything, there are things I could say that could make it worse. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that's the, it's a skill set, honestly. Um, and it's a skill set not everybody has and not everybody's comfortable with. And not all the members on the team are comfortable with because they want to they want to 
often fix it, right? When we think about the medical component of the work that we do, what's the solution? What's the intervention? And the intervention is usually doing something versus mm -hmm. as social workers, one of our interventions is active listening, is sitting with them, is that in itself, not doing anything is sometimes the intervention. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of leads into what he was saying. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to, to yell out mic drop when he, when he made the comment about social workers are the casualties, the hidden casualties of medicine, because everybody always wants to look towards the, the, what he called the first line. So like the doctors and the nurses and things like that, but it's the social workers that are kind of the behind the scenes, the, the, I think he called it quiet sufferers because we're the ones that continue to show up and continue to deal with these hard situations with them, to sit in these uncomfortable spots, to, to let the patient be okay with not being okay. Mm -hmm. And it takes a toll on us. I mean, we would be not being honest with ourselves. And I think a lot of us do that of saying, oh, it's okay. We, we, we're fine. We're strong. This is what we're meant to do. This is our job on to the next one. Mm -hmm. um, and when we don't often give ourselves that space for processing it or to recognize the heaviness and the weight of what we do. And by doing that, we're not, we're not showing up for ourselves and thereby sometimes not being able to be the best we can for our patients. You know, it's it, honestly, I, I know that there was this long, awkward silence, but I feel like there needed to be because it, it it's just, I had to sit with that and I have to sit with the depth of what we talked about in this interview. And I hope that if anything comes out of this, that social workers out there that work in transplant and VAD realize the weight and the value that they bring and that the team members see that we are casualties just as much as they are mm -hmm. and that this is a team approach. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I want to open it up to the audience. I want to hear from you guys, the listeners, did this speak to you? And if so, what did it say? What are some changes that we as social workers as a collective can make systemically where we are heard and we are recognized? Because one of the things he talked about was, and we've already revisited it as well, was it's not, are you toxic? Is your healthcare system toxic? Is what is toxic about it and what can you change? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's looking at ourselves just as much as we look at the system. Mm-hmm. And how we take care of ourselves. Well, and and on that, I think one of my favorite things that he said um, was the the brighter the light, the deeper the darkness. Hmm. And I think that resonated with me so much too, because it is, you know, sometimes we have such a passion, right? We get so passionate about the work that we do, but it's almost as if the more passionate we might be sometimes the the harder it can be for us too 
Mm-hmm. But we ignore that. I mean, even saying that, even saying that right there is vulnerable and is like, no, that's not me. That's I'm talking about somebody else. Somebody else could benefit from that. But mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm being truly honest and vulnerable, which is what, you know, people tell me I'm supposed to do more. Uh, it is, <laughs> it, it is, it, it's, we, we can carry this load and we're tasked to do it, but we have to recognize that it is heavy. You know, exactly. he made reference to that too, but just even more so of, yeah, we do it and we do it damn well, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't get heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so with that, thank you guys so much for listening. I really hope that you feel compelled to pick up one of Dr. Wicks's books I would love to hear your comments, questions, mm-hmm. and hopefully we can convince him for a follow-up interview. And Have we a... do. Ooh. No, no, please, please. Of course. No, no, I was going to say, and we do want to hear from you again, to Kristen's point. Um, again, I can't be the only one being vulnerable out here, guys. Yeah, exactly. So we want to hear from you. We want to hear your wins, your victories your losses, your griefs, and your struggles, all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly. We want to celebrate and mourn together. We do. And we want to know where do you sit in, in the scale of the resilient clinician to the burnt out clinician? Where are you on that spectrum? Uh, as Dr. Wick and, and myself answered, and as we exit, and as you were thinking about that, Kristen, I am going to ask you, since you didn't get a chance <laughs> to interject during that time, So as you all are thinking about it out there, I'm going to put Kristen on the spot. I would be lying if I was saying that I am on the higher end of the scale. At the present moment where we are sitting, I am, I am struggling and I'm being very honest about that. I think I wouldn't be doing justice to our podcast and our entire mission here if I wasn't being vulnerable and I wasn't being honest. I lost a patient and that loss hit me much harder than not only that I was expecting, but then other losses that I have experienced recently. So I feel like I'm in a period of grief, which I don't think a lot of people recognize that clinicians experience grief when they lose a patient or that the fact that when we're in the world of transplant, that there's a lot of palliative care work that goes along with what we do. And I'm sad. Thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. It's important for us to do. And I'm glad that you have the space to do it. And I'm glad that you have the comfort to do it um, here. Absolutely. And one thing is that I am grateful that I was able and had the privilege to be a part of this family's story. I am just sad and angry that the ending wasn't what we all wanted but you know what as dr wick said you were faithful Mm -hmm. you were there and you showed up thanks i appreciate you saying that the information shared on this podcast is for informational and or entertainment purposes only and is hipaa compliant The information shared on this podcast comes from two certified clinical transplant and mechanical circulatory support social workers 
The views and opinions expressed are our own and not affiliated with any specific institution, but to the community of transplant and MCS social work at large. The information shared here is for educational and entertainment purposes and is not meant as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Furthermore, it is not meant to override policies or guidelines for any institution. Please consult your healthcare provider before making any healthcare decisions or for guidance about specific medical condition. Our goal is to provide you with the most accurate information in the most respectful way. However, we are human and we ask for grace and accountability. If we say something you feel is incorrect or inappropriate, please tell us so we can correct ourselves and work to be better.